If you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. Now, we haven't even started preaching it, but that is worth an amen. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and an exact representation of his being. Have you ever had to make a snap judgment about somebody? Let's be honest, that's all we're doing all the time, actually, is making snap judgments about people. And I know you like to think of yourself as someone who is, who is open-minded and thoughtful, and you always give people a chance. But we're not that way. We're not built that way as humans. And I, I wish we were, and I wish we lived up to our highest ideal, but we're not. And you may think that you're built that way, but you can reveal the type of uh, judgments, snap judgments you make about people anytime you decide to buy something off of Craigslist. And the reason is, is because you're looking for some item you want, a used microwave, a snowmobile, I don't know, whatever. You buy something used online, and you're like, this looks good, and of course the description looks good, and generally the pictures looks good, but you actually got to go to a location, and you got you to gotta look somebody in the eye, and you got to figure out whether or not I trust this human being that is going to sell me this product that I'm going to pay money for. Is this, does this microwave really work? And so what you do is you look at them and you have to make some sort of snap judgment about them within 30 seconds. I mean, you've all been in situations where you went to buy a car and you met this person at the dealership and you didn't like the salesman, so you decided not to buy the car. Not because you didn't like the car, but because you didn't like the person's character. There was something about their character that impacted your behavior. And this is true just kind of generally with human interactions. There's something about people's character. We make assumptions about their character, and it impacts the way uh, we, we react to them. Some of you would never buy something used online ever because you're like, I, you have an assumption about human character. People are generally bad. They're out to get me. They're out to take my money. Some of us are so <laughs> naive and trusting. Oh, yeah, you want to meet in a dark alley at midnight? Sure, that sounds great. We're the type of people that end up on 60 Minutes. My wife, my, my wife illustrated this for me perfectly this week. Uh, earlier this week, she came home from Target or somewhere like that, and she'd been shopping, and she, uh, she said, there was this guy at Target, real tall guy, and he was making eye contact and smiling at me. Now, at first, I'm like, well, that doesn't seem like such a bad thing. She's like, she was like, but it was totally unnecessary eye contact. Now, I don't know what that means exactly, but it was like too much. It was too much. You know, all of you have been in a situation where you're like, I'm getting too much attention from that person. What are they thinking? What are their intentions? Now, Kareen told me that, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, no. Because that is my brand at Target. I'm going down the canned goods aisle, and I'm making eye contact and smiling at people all over the place. So I am at least people who think or have the, the character assessment that my wife does. I am creeping people out right and left. They think I'm a sociopath because I'm smiling and making eye contact. I'm trying to communicate. I'm a friendly human being. You don't have to worry about me. But evidently, I'm communicating like Silence of the Lambs type stuff. 
But it's the assumptions we make about people. That's all it is. It's just it, we bring to every moment, every human interaction, we bring to bear not just assumptions about that person, but we bring to, to bear assumptions about humans in general. But the more you get to know someone, the more specific your reaction to their character is. And we, we all know this. We've all seen this. We've all interacted with this. You may have that friend who always, always is late for everything. And when they absolutely cannot be late because you're going to miss the movie or miss the bus or miss the airplane or whatever it is, you will lie to them and tell them that something is earlier than it is in order to try to attempt to get them there on time. And so what you're doing is you're taking their character and you're reacting to who they are. If you have a friend who you love dearly, but they always lose their temper when you play board games with them. I mean, you may hang out with them, you may do other things with them, but you're not playing Monopoly because you are behaving in reaction to their character. Their character is, is, is changing the way that you interact with them. Character and behavior, character and behavior. And the more you know about someone, the more you react in a specific way to their character. Our assumptions about God have a huge impact on our behavior. Our assumptions about God have a huge impact on our behavior. And I, I would think, I would wonder, maybe everybody in the room has some of the same assumptions about God, but I kind of doubt that. I think we all have different assumptions about God, about who he is and about what he cares about, about what matters to him. And those assumptions that we bring into this relationship with God have a tremendous impact on our day-to-day -day behavior. I have uh, read through a book called Knowledge of the Holy by a guy named A.W. Tozer. And I, I don't know, maybe some of you have read it, but I've read it so you don't have to. And, and in the very beginning, the very premise of this, his book is this idea that we have the wrong idea of God. And because we have the wrong idea of God, we react oddly to God. But the quote that he begins this book with is this one. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Really? The most important thing? I don't know if it's the most important thing. Maybe the fact that I'm a, you know, a dad, maybe that's the most important thing. Or the fact that you know, I have this career, or maybe the fact that I have this sort of personality. The, what I think about God is the most important thing. And what he's essentially saying is that our ideas of God's character have such a dramatic and transformative effect on our lives that it's the most important thing. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And, and think about this, because we do have different ideas of God. I've met people, you've met people that have this idea of God that maybe God doesn't care about uh, sin. He just doesn't care about the things that we do. Do you think that doesn't have an impact on the way people live, the choices they make, the way that they engage their life? Of course it does. Absolutely it does. You've also met people who feel like God only cares about sin. And that's the, there's just no other aspect to him. And that's all that matters to him. Or only cares about certain sins. And so as long as they avoid those sins, they're good. They got a VIP line to heaven as long as they're not doing those things. But their ideas of the character of God impact their behavior. <laughs> Some people feel like God, you know, God's word is maybe not the final word on a matter. Well, that impacts their behavior. That impacts the way that they interact with the world, the things that they value, the things that they prioritize, the things, the values and priorities they try to instill in their children. I mean, it impacts so many things. And so the more you think about it, the more you're like, yeah, maybe that is something that's just so fundamental to who we are that it, we just don't, almost don't even think about it because it's just normal. It's like breathing. We don't think about it, but it's so valuable. 
Our idea of the character of God, our idea of the heart of God. There's just a thousand different ways our idea of God impacts our lives. And um, it impacts how we read the Bible. It impacts how we interact with other humans, other people. And I think it's fair to say there is not a corner of your life, whether you realize it or not, there's not a corner of your life that isn't impacted by your idea of God. Whether you agree with that statement or not, I think it's true. There's not a corner of your life that isn't impacted by your idea of God. The only difference is maybe we haven't connected the dots yet. But every corner of our life is impacted by our idea. It's a reaction to our idea of the character of God. So what are my assumptions about God? How are those assumptions playing themselves out in my life? Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the past, God spoke to the prophets. And so the prophets tried to give us an idea of what God was like. So uh, I've had many jobs before I became a preacher. Too many jobs, probably. But one of the jobs that I had was working as a pool boy. So I was the guy that came and cleaned up the pools and fixed the pools. And if the pools were green, I was the guy that came and made them not green. I was the pool guy. That was me. That was my job. And so I spent a lot of time in people's backyards. And you can learn a lot about human character from being in a person's backyard. You learn a lot about them, what they value, what they don't value. Because it's the backyard. It's not the front yard where everybody sees. It's the backyard where rarely people see, except for the pool boy. One house I went to, uh, this family trained German shepherd guard dogs. And so you would walk in the backyard and there would be these huge 10-foot fences. I wish this was an actual picture, but it's not. It's just a scary-looking German shepherd. But there would be these huge 10-foot fences and uh, you, would, you had to walk along the fences to get to where the pool was. And I'm telling you, like, I, it, th- these were, you imagine Nazi prison guard dogs and this was like it. They were snarling like that. They were barking at you. There was nothing more that they wanted to do than to tear down that fence and eat you for lunch. That's all they wanted to do. And it was just like, you're, you know that feeling of where, yeah, I know I'm safe because I got this fence, but I'm a little nervous, you know. I'm keeping my eye on the dogs. I'm watching. So I'm in the backyard. I'm, I'm working on this pool. I have to turn off the electricity to the pump. And the homeowner said the electricity was in a detached garage right around the corner from the pool. So I go into this detached garage and there's a minivan in the middle. And I go to the far side of the garage and I click off the electricity. And then I turn back around to go to the door. And true story, in walks a German shepherd in the door. Um, I don't know, you know that feeling when you're so scared all your body parts are in different spots, like your, your heart drops and your stomach's in your throat and all that kind of stuff, and you can't talk. And So I'm, it, there's not like, I'm not, I'm not screaming. It's like, it's beyond, it's horror. It's, it's beyond horror, because I've seen the dogs behind that fence, and in this garage walked one of these dogs, and I'm just standing there, and all I could squeak out was, it was basically a question, it was like, good doggy? It was a suggestion slash question. I hope, I hope, fingers crossed. And I just stood there and it just, it felt like forever, you know, just that every adrenaline, every, I don't know, all the stuff coursing through your brains, your, your, your body, your veins, all that stuff. It's just like pure, sheer terror. I was trying to plot my escape route. There's this minivan. Do I hide behind the minivan? I don't, I didn't know what to do. Come to find out, I won't tell you the whole story, but come to find out that they trained German Shepherd guard dogs, but they had one German Shepherd that wasn't a guard dog, and it was just the family pet, a friendly pet. But it looked exactly like the guard dogs, exactly. So I had no 
point of reference. All I knew was the scary guard dogs. This dog looked like the scary guard dogs. I was fine, but you better believe it. Even though the dog didn't chew me up for lunch, even though that didn't happen, I was still very wary of that dog the whole time. But I just want you, if you can, in your mind, just to kind of like grab a moment where you can relate to that idea of terror, that idea of horror. Just, you know, I'm not talking about like watching a scary movie. I'm talking about a moment in your life where you're just like, (gasps) you just, you can't hardly breathe. You can't hardly react. Okay. I want you to have that in your mind because we're about to read a passage of scripture that elicits that reaction in the people who wrote it. All right. So remember, in the past, God spoke to people through the prophet. And so the prophets would write these accounts of what God had told them. But every once in a while, they would write accounts of what God was like. They would write a description of God. They would say, here's who God is. And I want to share one of those accounts with you because it's one of those sections of scripture. If you're one of those people that likes to read your Bible every day, or if you're one of those people that the only Bible reading you get is the Bible app sends you a verse of the day, the Bible app never sends a verse from this section of scripture. It never does. Because it's one of those sections of scripture. If you're just reading through it, you're like, I don't get this. I'm going to skip over to Psalm 23 because that makes sense to me. This is weird stuff. And we're going to lean into it this morning because this is who God is, spoken to us through the prophets. So Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel is a prophet talking about who God is. Ezekiel chapter 1. And I want you to, I want you to see what, how he describes God. Ezekiel chapter 1. This is really starting in verse 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north. An immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal. He doesn't even have the words. He's got to use similes. I, I, it's... It, Glowing metal is the closest I can come. And in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. This is so strange, folks. In appearance, their form was human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight. Their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed with burnished bronze. Like, what is this? This is in your Bible. Did you know that? Probably not because we skip over this. Verse 8, under their wings, on the four sides, they had human hands, and all of, all of them had faces and wings. And each of the wings, uh, one of, uh, each, each, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Now, he goes on for another 10 verses describing what these beings were like. And it's strange, and I totally encourage you to read it, because the Bible is a very strange, fascinating, amazing book. But jump down to verse 22. Spread out. This is just what... God comes writing. This is just God's vehicle. This is God's Uber showing up to Ezekiel. That's all this is, and that's how bizarre that is. Verse 22, spread out above the heads of the living creatures what, what looks something like a vault. He just can't even describe it. There's not even something like a vault, I guess, a vault? Sparkling like crystal and awesome. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. I didn't even know what that was. Did you know that's a word and that's a phrase in the Bible? It's like a blue crystal kind of thing. We don't know. It looked like this blue crystal kind of thing, lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that, like that of a man. Verse 27, I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire. And from there down, he looked like fire and brilliant light surrounded him. And this next verse is my favorite part of the description of this whole thing. Uh, Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance that surrounded him. What what is this? 
This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. What in the world is this? Well, this is God. This is, this is the God that we've been singing to and about this morning. This is God. And Ezekiel says, when I saw this, I fell face down. And this was the consistent response of anybody who saw anything even remotely like this in the Old Testament. When I saw this, I fell face down. Why? Because they were terrified. You take whatever I felt in that little detached garage hiding behind that minivan when I saw that German shepherd come in, and you multiply it by a billion, and this is what Ezekiel is experiencing when he sees the presence of God, the glory of the radiance of the likeness of the presence of the Lord. This is what he sees. Wow. So this is inspiring in a lot of ways, but honestly, it's kind of confusing, too. In Hebrews, later in Hebrews, I, I wanted to spend uh, our time like our text in Hebrews, but later in Hebrews chapter 12, there's this other brief account I'll read quickly, but I want, I want you to see the emotional response that people had to this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, he, the author writes, you have not come to a mountain, this is referring back to Exodus when they received the Hebrew people received the law, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. When God, if you remember your Bible class stuff, when God descended on Mount Sinai, the people were like, ah, we're, we're out. Moses, you go talk to him. This God is terrifying. And even Moses, verse 21, the sight was so terrifying. Terrifying, imagine that. Emotionally engaged. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. This is somebody that God had handpicked to interact with himself, between himself and the people. And Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. I, I, I have no words what this is like. It's, it's beyond wild. It's beyond bizarre. And so, so let me say this. We need, this is important. Knowing God is terrifying. <laughs> knowing God is terrifying. If you read the Bible, knowing God is terrifying. There's no like, God is my homeboy, the man upstairs. There's none of that. Being in the presence of God is sheer horror. That's what it feels like. I thought God was supposed to be like cuddly, lovable, mercy, great. Yeah, he, he's those things. But you have to understand this basic concept of him presented to us through the prophets. You have to understand this as we begin to understand who his character is. So it begs the question, how am I supposed to learn about this God? How am I supposed to know this God? How am I supposed to get close to this God? How am I supposed to understand his character? How am I supposed to know his heart? How is what I think about God supposed to be the most important thing about me when I have no idea what to think about God? I don't even know where to start with that Ezekiel understanding. I'll just skip over that and I'll get to something I like. But this is God. The God described by the prophets, revealed to us by the prophets. Maybe for you, God has felt strange or confusing or distant. And I know we don't always uh, admit this sort of thing at church. And maybe we've not thought of this sort of thing at church. But for some people, even at church, and they don't want to admit it, but for them, God is strange. They read about these stories of God in the Old Testament, and they're just scratching their heads like, I don't get it. Why all the laws? Why did he do that? Why all the genocide? I don't get it. I don't get it. And it's just easier to keep that God at arm's length. I don't understand him. He's confusing. He doesn't make sense to me. How am I supposed to know his heart? I just don't get it. Maybe your idea of the character of God wasn't specifically from the pages of Scripture. Maybe you prayed about something incredibly important to you. And it felt like God didn't answer. And so you begin to form your idea 
of the character of God by that lack of response or that seeming lack of response to your prayer. Maybe that was it. Or maybe you thought, God, I have invested time in trying to be the type of person that I think I'm supposed to be, and I feel like there should be some payout, but my life is hard, and sometimes it feels hard as a result of trying to be the person that you're asking me to be. It doesn't feel right, and you begin to shape your idea of the character of God based on those experiences. So whether you're reading the Bible or whether your experiences are shaping your idea, you begin to, you're, I just don't know. I don't get it. It's strange. It's confusing. I mean, I'm not trying to make light of it, but totally it's like me and math in high school. I was like, I don't, I don't get it. I still don't get it. My kids now ask me for help with math. I don't get it. Keep that at a distance from me because it doesn't make sense. Find a YouTube video. That's the way you're going to figure that one out. And I think for a lot of us, that's like, God's confusing. I don't know. It's, sure, I'm supposed to love him. I'm not going to admit to anybody that I feel distant and confused and, and, and strange by God. But I don't get it. I just don't get it. Well, Hebrews has more to say. Verse 2. So he spoke to us in the prophets, Ezekiel and others. He spoke to us in the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir to all things and through whom he also made the universe. I highlighted air and universe because it, the, uh, the book of Hebrews is an incredible book. It is a dense, like, rich theological book. And it's written to people who knew the Bible inside and out. So typically when I preach, and most sermons you've been to, if a, sermon, if a preacher gets up to preach, he references scripture. He says, my sermon today is going to be from, you know, John 3.16 or whatever. And that is so you can open up your Bibles to John 3.16 make sure that he's just not making stuff up. But... In Hebrews, he doesn't do that. He has all these references to different verses in Scripture. And his audience was so adept in Scripture that he didn't have to stop and pause and say, well, this is from Psalm 2. This is from Proverbs 8. So the word heir is a callback to uh, Psalm 2, where God is talking about installing his royal heir to reign over Zion. You know? yeah, we all know that, right? We knew that. Or making the universe, that's a callback, of course, to Genesis 1, but also Proverbs 8. Now, his audience knows, they, they see all these callbacks to different verses, but we don't see them. We just haven't memorized the Bible, that's all. Get memorizing the Bible, and we'll be as good as they are. But there's all these dense uh, uh, references to Scripture within Hebrews chapter, uh, the whole book of Hebrews, but specifically these first three verses. Verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The sun is the radiance. Radiance. Does that, does that ring any bells for anybody in the room? Did we read a verse earlier that had the word radiance in it? Didn't it wasn't there a verse in Ezekiel uh, tw- verse one, chapter 1, verse 28? Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So it was the radiance. All, it's kind of a unique word. The radiance all around him. Now, it may go right over our heads. It certainly, for the most part, does. But for the people reading this, it would not have gone over their heads. Because they didn't skip over Ezekiel chapter 1. They were into all these descriptions of God. And when they saw certain key words, they were like, I know what he's talking about. And so what they are seeing, that kind of we miss a little bit, they are saying that the author of Hebrews is saying that God that is represented by that crazy, weird, bizarre picture in Ezekiel chapter 1, that God is also Jesus. Wait, the, the weird fire glowing, all that? That? Yes, that God is also Jesus. Well, that, wait, so that crazy, scary God that makes people fall face down because they're so fearful, so, so much horror? Yes, that God, that God is also Jesus. Oh, okay, interesting, interesting. Now, maybe you're not convinced. That's fine, no big deal. If you uh, read on in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the sun 
is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I know we're all Greek scholars in here. I am no Greek scholar. I don't want to pretend that I am. I'm just, I knew what I was going to preach about, so I had a chance to study it before I got up here and talked about it. The, word, the phrase, exact representation, is just one word in Greek. Um, and I've got it up on the screen. Anybody? Uh, anybody? You're trying. You guys are good. You're trying. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you the transliteration because you know this word whether you realize it or not. Go to the next slide if you would. The sun is the character of God. The sun is the character of God. The exact representation, sure, that works. The sun is the character. Jesus is the heart of God. Jesus is the heart of God. This cannot be overstated, all right? You gotta hear this. If we wanna know what God is like, we look at Jesus. If we wanna know what God cares about, we look at what Jesus cares about. If we wanna know what God values, we look at what Jesus values. There is not a better explanation of God in the world than Jesus Christ. There's no better explanation. There is no clearer explanation of God in the world than Jesus Christ. Jesus is, Jesus is the final word of God. In the Old Covenant, we absolutely get glimpses of God. We get glimpses of the character of God. We have to squint, we have to look, we, we can't get too close. But Jesus is the final word of God. We saw a dim outline, but the light hasn't dawned yet. I mean, you may see like blocky shapes, but when you see Jesus, you see a clear representation of God. Paul actually said that the old law, the old covenant, the old testament, the prophets, the description of God in the prophets was a shadow, but Jesus is the reality. Jesus is the reality of God in the world. Wow, this is a big deal. Listen, I wrote this down because I didn't want anybody to miss it. Jesus is the clearest, best, ultimate, high def, 4K, crystal clear, highest resolution, zoomed all the way in, large print, vivid, in full color, undeniable representation of God. Now, you're like, okay, sounds fun, Patrick. You seem kind of excited about that. That's a fun little tidbit of knowledge that maybe if I'm ever in a setting where I have to impress some other Christians, I'll, I'll pull those verses out. But what does this have to do with me? What practical value does that information have to do for me? I'm unloading my dishwasher this week. Who cares if Jesus is the ultimate representation of God? I'm on my commute. Who cares if Jesus is the ultimate representation of God? I'm trying to do my homework. I'm trying to study for the SAT, ACT. Who cares if Jesus is the ultimate representation of God? Who cares? What practical value? This is just all you churchy types. You get there in your little office and you forget there's a real world out there. And we need to know how do we navigate the real world. What do we need all this? Jesus is like God in Ezekiel 1. I don't, whatever. Eh, I'll, just, I'll just go listen to a podcast of a better preacher this week. <laughs> I know you will, but that's okay. So what? Jesus is our context for understanding the heart of God. Jesus is our context for understanding the heart of God. My, uh, my anniversary is coming up. My wedding anniversary is coming up. I should be specific. And uh, I, I, I was, you know, if I wanted to surprise Corrine with a special fun wedding uh, anniversary trip, I certainly couldn't go to her and say, hey, where would you like to be surprised to? I mean, I suppose that would be actually a good idea. But 
Where would you like to be surprised to go to? I can't do that. I got to come up with a surprise on my own and surprise her, and then that'll be fun, and everybody will love that, and she'll love that, and it'll all be good. I was reading this week about this couple that's celebrating a big anniversary by climbing Mount Everest together. So that'll be, that'll be fun. And I was like, I, I would like to do that. That sounds fun. That sounds enjoyable. And so what I have to do if I'm surprising Crean on our wedding anniversary, I have to think like, okay, what sorts of things does Corrine enjoy doing? Well, she's not a huge fan of cold weather. Everest, it's, uh, I looked up the temperature earlier. It's seven degrees right now, seven degrees. I don't know if it's at the top. I don't know if some guy goes to the top every day. It's seven degrees and then goes back down. I don't know how they do that, but you can Google it. It's seven degrees. Corrine uh, also doesn't like needlessly expensive things. She's, she's practical. It's about $50,000 a person to climb Mount Everest. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I got the most reaction this morning out of anything. I'm preaching about Jesus here, and you're like, 50000 to climb Mount Everest? You guys got to be kidding me. Corrine is not, like, I like hiking around the cities. It's not really Corrine's thing. Would I want to take her on this hike to the top of the world? Well, I don't know. Maybe not a great idea. Uh, in, in fact, and just one thing you might want to know about her. She's not a big fan of heights. Not a big fan of heights. Uh, she doesn't like going up ladders, so I, I just can't imagine. This is, this is what you have to do to go to Everest. I can't imagine this being appealing to her in any way, shape, or form. Now, here's the important question. Do I need to ask Corrine whether or not this is a good idea? If I do, there's something else that's fundamentally wrong. No. If I want to honor her and please her, I can figure this out on my own. I can figure this out. What practical value does learning about the heart of God, learning that Jesus is the heart of God, have to do for us? As disciples, we do find ourselves in situations where the path before us has not necessarily been clearly spelled out. There are not signs saying this is the exact right way. It is required, it is incumbent on us to do some navigation. There are things that we have to figure out. And because our goal as disciples is to please God, we have to put on our thinking caps and figure out what sorts of behaviors and thoughts and ideas and beliefs and ways we interact in the world, what sorts of, how are are we going to please God? How are we going to do this? Our church right now is engaged in a really important study, and uh, if you're a regular member of the church here and you're not coming at nine, I I don't know why. You you should come at nine because we're talking about incredibly important things uh, for for our church family. But there are things that not everybody agrees on. They're not not things that that we all have consensus on. And so uh, we have to figure out, like, what is God's heart what is God's heart? What is God's ultimate desire? If we want to please God, we got to figure out what does God care about? What does God care about? Let me give you one really quick illustration and then we'll wrap up, okay? Matthew chapter 9, verse 11 through 13. Jesus is at a party. He talked to a guy named Matthew. He said, Matthew, you want to be my disciple? Matthew said, sure. Left his tax booth and then immediately threw Jesus a party. But the only people he knew to invite were other tax collectors and other general center categories. And so the guest list was just full of sinners. It's full of bad people because that's all Matthew knew. And so Jesus is at this party doing who knows what, partying it up. And the Pharisees get wind of it. And the Pharisees walk over. And they see Jesus partying with a bunch of sinners. And they're like, Jesus, I, I mean, how can he do this? This is ridiculous. This is incredible. This is awful. This is terrible. You call yourself a rabbi. You're supposed to be helping people understand the path to God, not, not consorting with terrible, awful, awful people. 
Now, the Pharisees don't actually say that to Jesus because they're not bold enough. So they actually say that to his disciples. But Jesus overheard it. Jesus was tuned in. He had this, you know, whatever, super sense. And he overheard it and he says to the Pharisees, these are people who, who have maybe accepted the burden of responsibility of keeping everybody around them in tune with the law. And he tells this group of people, all right, hey, guys, come here, come here. I want you to go and learn what this phrase means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hmm, what does this phrase mean? Now, this is really interesting because we don't get this either, but that's a reference to the book of Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, right? You all know that, right? Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6, where the prophet is telling the people of God, you guys are ridiculous because you don't care about other human beings, but you feel like you're good because you've offered sacrifices. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Did God want sacrifice? Yes, he's got a whole book about it. You can read about it, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's a whole book about sacrifice, but he says, you're missing the point. And then, you know, a couple hundred years later, four or five hundred years later, uh, Jesus is at a party and he quotes that same passage. Like, what? How does, what, uh, what does sacrifice and mercy have to do? What we're seeing is Jesus is living out the heart of God in ways that it was hard for people to anticipate. They didn't see how this was going to work, but he's living out the heart of God. And he says, you guys are all worried about, like, doesn't the character of God teach us that we should avoid sinners? No, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's the heart of God. Does that mean that they weren't supposed to sacrifice? No. But does that mean that God had something that was bigger at play? Jesus is the heart of God. Jesus is the heart of God. The words of God, or the word of God, without the heart of God, will not lead to God. The word of God, without the heart of God, will not lead to God. That's good. I, I think that's good. I think we should hold on to that. The word of God, oh, but I read, without the heart of God, without the character of God, without the values of God, it doesn't lead to God. It doesn't lead us down a path toward God because that's, we're missing the point and God's word can be misused and mishandled in ways that actually do damage. Truth doesn't change, God's words don't change, but when we begin to grasp the heart of God revealed in Jesus Christ, the truth becomes deeper and clearer because Jesus gives us context for understanding God. So here's my prayer. Here's what this is all about. As, as we go through life, but certainly as we go through this study, you're gonna find that there are scriptures you don't understand and you're gonna find that there are people with whom you disagree. And what I would beg of all of us to keep in mind is that we are, under, we are trying to understand God's word in light of God's character and that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And that should give shape to how we understand the scripture. But secondly, there are going to be people with whom you disagree. That's true. That's always going to be true. Humans don't have a super great track record for dealing with people with whom they disagree. And so I want you to understand the heart of God is that we are still brothers and sisters. We still love one another. We still encourage one another. We still care about one another. There is no room for disrespect or cruelty. There's no room for gossip. There's no room for saying things behind anybody's back. There's no room for that. Because we are trying to live out the heart of God. And that is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.